Nick Nanton, and welcome to Now to Next, the podcast where I interview some of the top experts and professionals all across the globe to talk about what's happening now and what you can expect next. Anthony Scaramucci is the founder and co-managing partner of Skybridge Capital. He's the author of four books, The Little Book of Hedge Funds, Goodbye Gordon Gecko, Hopping Over the Rabbit Hole, which is my favorite, and Trump the Blue Collar President. Prior to founding Skybridge in 2005, Scaramucci co-founded investment partnership Oscar Capital Management, which was sold to Newberger Berman LLC in 2001. Earlier, he was a vice president in private wealth management at Goldman Sachs. In 2016, he was ranked number 85 in Worth Magazine's Power 100, the 100 most powerful people in global finance. In 2011, he received Ernst & Young's Entrepreneur of the Year New York Award in the financial services category. Anthony is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, the vice chair of the Kennedy Center Corporate Fund Board, a board member of both the Brain Tumor Foundation and Business Executives for National Security, and a trustee of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Foundation. He was a member of the New York City Financial Services Advisory Committee from 2007 to 2012. Then here's the fun part everyone knows a little bit about. In 2016, uh, November of 2016, he was named to President-elect Trump's 16-person Presidential Transition Team Executive Committee. In June 2017, he was named the Chief Strategy Officer of the EXIM Bank, and he served as the White House Communications Director for a period in 2017. I like that line. Garamucci, a native of Long Island, New York, holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in Economics from Tufts University and a JD. He's a fellow lawyer like myself uh, from Harvard Law School. Anthony, what's up, man? How are you surviving the quarantine? Yeah, you could say that I got fired. I don't know who I don't know who wrote that, but yeah, I got fired from the White House after 11 days, which uh, at the time sucked. But right now, I'm feeling great about it. You know, I mean, look at this bozo. You know, what I mean, thank God. So anyway, how are you, man? Last time I saw you, we were at the Bellagio Hotel. We were uh, in the middle of my salt conference. You came up to see my wife and I. Yep. Yep. And now, and, and now it's a year plus later. We can't do our salt conference. It's canceled, and. Yep. Uh, I'm trapped in my house. And so any excuse that I have to hide here uh, in my home man cave, fantastic. I got it, man. And so, yeah, we are working on, most people don't know, I actually wear my logo here uh, for my show. In case you didn't know, your episode is going to be rolling out uh, this summer. So uh, if, even if we're still quarantined, we will keep you entertained. That's our promise. All right. Amen. Well, that was an entertaining interview. So hopefully... Uh, you caught the full glory of uh, that whole insanity. It was lots of fun. I got Kathleen Forrest watching. Thanks for coming in, Kathleen. Hey, so this is on my podcast now to next. We talk about what's happening now and what's going to happen next. One of the things I think is really instructive uh, about your book, Hopping Over the Rabbit Hole, well, it covers your journey, but it really covers sort of a seminal moment in your career when you didn't let the, the circumstances of the world dictate what you did. And so we'll get there in a minute, but I think most kids don't know, most people don't know about sort of where you came from. Let's talk a little bit about growing up. One of my favorite stories is you on the paper route. Tell me a few things uh, that you learned from your paper route. Well, I mean, you know, look, I, I just uh, set the scene for it. I grew up in a typical middle class, working class family, you know, Italian Americans uh, in a in Italian American neighborhood. OK, so there were African Americans, Italian Americans, Irish Americans. And we were beating the living daylights out of each other while we were growing up. And so my dad was a uh, hourly worker. He had a uh, job as a crane operator uh, and he did that job for 41 years. And so he's 85 today. And, uh, you know, he was a very hard worker. He's a strict disciplinarian. Uh, but, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, but we I would never dishonor my dad. I tell you, I grew up poor. I did not grow up poor. It was 
very middle class. But when I was about 11 years old, uh, we were in a midst of a recession. My dad got his work cut back. And so uh, I started a paper route. I went to Long Island Newsday and they gave me a very small route that I built into the biggest route in our town. And so what I did was I, I got an idea, went to the my boss, Mr. Fusco, uh, who I haven't seen in a long time, but I hope he's okay. But anyway, he was a great guy and he gave me free papers on Wednesday. And so there were these uh, sort of blue collar apartment buildings called the Dolphin Green Apartments. They're still in Port Washington. And I took those papers and I laid one down by every doorstep inside that apartment complex. Uh, and then I went back the next day, rang every door and said, hey, how are you? And of course, a lot of these women were my mom's friends. And I was right. like, hey, I just gave you a free paper. Do you want daily and Sunday or do you just want daily, which would be Monday to Saturday? And of course, you know, I persuaded all these people to like join my paper route at my subscription. And so I took like a 21 paper route and turned it into like 140 papers, uh, which was a big enterprise back in 1976. You know, it was like a $35 a week. So I gave $20 to my parents, kept 15 for myself. And uh, I hustled that paper out for two years, but I wanted to play baseball. So I quit when I was 13. I thought, I thought Mr. Fusco was like going to break down and cry. You know what I mean? So, and of course the subscriptions sort of collapsed right after I quit, but Listen, it was a lot of fun. It taught me a lot. I still have somewhere in the house, because I'm a little bit of a hoarder, the blue book that had everybody's name in it. And I had little stars next to the women that tipped me the best. And so Mrs. Sheridan from Mrs. You know, from Sheridan Electric, Mayor Soul, rest in peace. She died about 15 years ago. But just to give you a sense, it was a 75 cents to have daily and Sunday for Long Island Newsday. She used to give me $3.50 for a tip. Okay, so I learned a lot from her. I try to tip everybody like Mrs. Sheridan. You know what I mean? She was, she was great. I couldn't wait for a Thursday afternoon to ring her doorbell and say, hi, Mrs. Sheridan, collect. And she'd show up with $3.50. I thought it was, I had like that. actually it was $4.25. I thought I had died and gone to heaven, you know? And by the way, just so everybody knows, I'm a big time Met fan, general admission in the mid seventies to go to Shea stadium from my house, you could get a 60 cent train ride and it was a dollar 50 to go into the stadium. So on, on Wednesdays when the Mets had that like day game before they were traveling, I would always go and hang out and keep score of the game. Very cool. Uh, I love that. And I, I think what I think is really important for people to know is that where we, where we start doesn't have to be where we end up. Right. And so you just, you decided that you were going to, you're going to try whatever you could to get out of your neighborhood. I, I read a lot about that, you know, just trying to to elevate and, and to help other people, giving them the news at the time and then going on to college. And then I, I got to hear the story because I think most people don't know it as well. If they haven't read the book, if you haven't checked out all of Anthony's books, but hopping over the rabbit hole, one of my favorites, Tony Robbins writes, is, wrote the foreword and Peter Diamandis, the introduction to my good friends and heroes. You, you decided to try uh, selling ice cream for a little bit. Tell us that story. Well, I mean, I just to go back to like transitioning, you know, if you're listening to this podcast or video cast and you are in a slump or you're in a place that you don't want to be, you have to like break down your self-consciousness and your fear of failure. Number one, because if you don't do that, then you won't have these life experiences. And so, you know, I failed. Obviously, the White House got fired after 11 days. But think of that life experience, you know, three times on Air Force One. 
learned a lot about how the government works and learned learn a lot about amoral people. Um, but what you're referencing is I uh, started an ice cream. I had an idea. Uh, I had just gotten into Harvard Law School. It was April of my senior year at Tufts. And so the Boston Marathon was on Patriots Day. Unfortunately, they canceled it this year. But it's like the third Monday in April. Um, they had the Boston Marathon. And so what I did was I rented a hood ice cream truck. So if you're from Northeast, you know, it's like hood dairy had these ice cream trucks and there was a freezer and I stuffed it with Dove bars, which were popular at that time and frozen fruit bars and all kinds of fun kids stuff. Um, I bought about $1,500 worth of ice cream. And on that Saturday, I was driving around in the ice cream truck. It was a very warm day and people would come over to the ice cream truck and I was making money. And on Sunday, it was a little less warm, but still was pretty good. But my big day was that Monday, Boston Marathon. I, I paid uh, the Exxon station at the midpoint of the Boston Marathon. I think it was in like Wellesley, uh, a $50. I plugged into his uh, outlet so the freezer would stay cold and I parked myself. But the problem was it was pouring rain. It was an April shower, if you will, and it was freezing. And I had no hedge. I had no hot water. I had no hot chocolate. I had nothing like hot coffee. And uh, I think I sold three ice cream bars in the pouring rain in the Boston, Maryland. Now I got all this ice cream and I was driving around a local deli to see if they would take the ice cream. And they were like, man, can't take the ice cream from you. You're not board of health approved. And the ice cream looks okay. It's in a wrapper, but, uh, but uh, you know, I, I can't take it from you. So I lost probably $1,300. And your trip to Italy, right? That was the big goal. You're, you're, you're getting my son, Nick Scaramucci, hoppy in here. Hey, saying, buddy, what's Nick. up? This is, this is right. what happens during all quarantine. It's all good. Yeah, this is what happens with quarantine. We have a similar so, experience. So I put on my first Broadway show last year. Uh, I directed my first Broadway show. And I went to... Actually, what was, was the name of the show? It was called uh, Dream Big, Rudy Rudiger Live on Broadway. So I put Rudy Live on Broadway. And uh, we, right. we, we ended up selling it out. But I actually did it because... There's another guy who I've been working with who told me that his dream was to go on Broadway and do a one man show. And so I, I sort of tried to figure out everything. I'm not a Broadway producer. I tried to figure out what I could do to do it. So he ends up connecting me with his nephew to talk about the deal points. And I'm like, look, man, your nephew doesn't know me from Adam. We've done things before. And his nephew happens to be the producer of like a huge Broadway show. So I'm like, look, my deal and his deal are going to look completely different. I'm going to look like a like an idiot because I'm trying to give you a one page handshake deal because you told me your life goal was to do Broadway. So, so he says something that you'll, you'll appreciate. He said, well, Nick, you're either one of the smartest people I've ever talked to or the biggest huckster I've ever heard. And so <laughs> I'm like, and he goes, and I've met a lot of really smart people. And so I ended up moving on. And I put Rudy on Broadway and uh, we sold out. We did a one night only. It was amazing. Uh, it was a great experience. But there's someone, when you started Skybridge Capital in March of 2005, so it's a hedge fund. It's sort of a democratized hedge fund, I'd call it, for sort of the mass yep. affluent. It allows those who don't have millions and millions and millions in cash to get in on smart investments with hedge funds. All the disclaimers here, there, and everywhere. If, if, if you want to invest with Anthony, go for it. We put the disclaimers in. Uh, past performance is an indication of future results. There you go. But, uh, but you had a, fr a friend accept your invitation to meet about starting SkyBridge. And this person says, not even, this is why it resonates with me so much, because 
either I'm the biggest huckster in the world or a pretty smart guy. He says, this guy says to you, not even a combo of Harry Houdini, the Easter Bunny, and Santa Claus could pull this off. And yet again, your daughter says, Daddy, what's Skybridge? No one's ever heard of this. Tell us about that time in your life, man. What made you push through? Well, you know, listen, I had, I had, I had created a business in uh, 1996 when I left Goldman. I was 32. I built that business with reasonable success. We sold it to Newberger Berman. Newberger then got merged into Lehman Brothers. And so that was a pretty good time. Uh, this is before, obviously, the 2008 financial crisis. So I left Lehman in 05 to start Skybridge. But what I wrote in Hopping Over the Rabbit Hole is I was in my home office. My daughter at that time was about 10 years old. And I was uh, I was putting together a PowerPoint presentation. And she's like, well, aren't you working at Lehman Brothers? And I said, yes. And she said, well, you know, a lot of my friends' daddies work at Lehman Brothers, you know, because we're in a suburban town uh, where Wall Streeters are. I said, yes, I know. She goes, yes. Yeah, so you're starting something called Skybridge. And I said, yes. She goes, so, so what is that? Like in like that? Isn't that like a little risky? I mean, you're going to leave, leave Lehman Brothers to start something that nobody knows. And, you know, out of the mouth of a babe, right, you get like the essence of entrepreneurship, right? So what do entrepreneurs do, Nick? They jump off a cliff and they start building an airplane while they're descending from the cliff. And so uh, people who are entrepreneurs that are listening to us can relate to that. They know the anxiety of that, the self-consciousness. They know that they don't have a... Uh, safety net to fall into. And, but what it does is it, it, it up takes your adrenaline, it uptakes your focus and it makes you uh, very earnest, you know, where you'll get up and you'll double and triple check your decision-making and you'll, you'll, you'll try to execute. So uh, I went out to pitch Skybridge at that time. It was a hedge fund seeding idea. I didn't have a track record in hedge fund seeding. So there's a gentleman by the name of Michael Simoff, great guy, works for a big hedge fund. He came to my presentation and he heard the presentation and he and he bought me a cup of coffee at a Starbucks that doesn't exist anymore. It was in the Sony building uh, up on Madison and 54th or 55th Street. And he said to me, uh, you're never going to be able to do this. And I said, well, why is that? You don't have a track record. It's a complicated story. No one's ever heard of Skybridge. And you should put this thing down and go work for a hedge fund or go back to work at an investment bank. And I said, okay, I appreciate you saying that to me, but it was like a punch in the solar plexus from a very, very smart guy. And I wrote that in the book because I want people to know that, like, of course, people are going to doubt you. Of course, they're going to, you know, uh, you know, because it's nothing. You know, Jeff Bezos, uh, he started a, a company and he said, I'm going to sell a book because they're easy to mail. They're easy to mail. I'm going to end up selling everything. I wanted to call it Amazon because there's an A and a Z in there, A to Z. But I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to start with a book. And people laughed at him. He left D.E. Shaw, which big hedge fund. He was making a ton of money. He was a young guy, 30, 31. Now he's the richest guy in the world. And so my point is, is that if I could talk to my younger self, Nick, I'm 56 years old. If I could talk to my 22 year old self coming out of Tufts or my 25 year old self, coming out of Harvard Law School, my message would be, be bolder, uh, dream bigger, take on more risk. I mean, sometimes what happens is you're worried. You're worried about failure. You're worried about, you have these anxieties about what you should do and how it's going to look. I call it the cocktail party conversation. 
a lot of people want to go to the cocktail party, put their finger up in the air with the cocktail and say, I work at XYZ prestigious firm. I'm doing ABC. So I want you to see the brand on my forehead and I want you to know I'm a super successful person. But if you're an entrepreneur and you're living a dream or you're trying to accomplish something, you have to do away with all that. You have to be able to go to that cocktail party and say, yeah, I started Skybridge. It had $340 million in it when I eventually got it off the ground. And in the midst of the 2008 financial crisis, it got down to $200 million. And I was almost out of business on my knees. But I started the SALT conference from there, which has gone on to have 10 years of great success. I bought Citibank's fund of funds and merged it into Skybridge. And we turned it into a 15-year enterprise. And by the way, we're going through it again now. You know, this uh, crisis is a lot like 2008 from a financial perspective. Uh, but I have a tremendous amount of confidence that my team who has this experience, point being is that like, whatever that anxiety is, whatever that fear is, if you can work yourself through that fear, then think about your life. The possibilities for your life are endless. And here's the other thing, like entrepreneurs know that it's actually the journey. It's not a cliche. If I fail, if I fail, Nick, I just want you to think about it. If I fail, the fact that I tried is the most honorable thing for me as a person and as it relates to my self-identity. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, and, to so, me, uh, and, and by the way, here's the good news. If I fail, guess what's great about America? You pick yourself up, you start again. That is an amazing thing. And I think, you know, failure is a, is a tool, right? I mean, I was talking with a friend yesterday, my business partner, Greg, and I mean, people always look at the successes because they're very visible. Uh, sometimes the failures are very visible too, but man, a failure is only a failure if you didn't learn something better from it. One of my mentors and coaches, Dan Sullivan, uh, he says that uh, he has a, a tool called the experience transformer. So when you, when something goes wrong, when you fail, you look at it and you look at the criteria that made it fail and you look at what what did I learn from that so I, I can control it better next time. And you can flip a bad experience into a positive experience because now you have the experience you didn't have before. And as we both know, there's literally no, there's not, uh, no substitute for experience. And so I, I couldn't agree with you more on that. One of the things I think is really interesting, on you, you talked about the financial crisis in, in 2008. You're rolling in and President Obama... Is, is railing hard on, on, on Wall Street. He says, you know, don't be thinking you guys can be, you know, going to Las Vegas anymore, anything like now, uh, like that right now. And it gives you an idea through one of your colleagues. You know what? We should host a financial seminar in Las Vegas in the middle of the crisis, putting your finger up at everything that's going on. Walk me through that because I, I want to walk through the, the wisdom of the things you did because we are walking through that right now. Nobody knows what this next what this current crisis is going to end up being. I mean, every day well, is worse, it seems. Yeah, well, I, I have to be, I, I was at Seton Hall University a couple of years ago. The kid raises his hand. He's like, Mr. Scaramucci, you explained to me the strategic brilliance and the vision of starting the SALT conference in the crisis. And I looked at him. I said, I really wish it was strategic vision and brilliance, but it wasn't. It was totally accidental. And I actually thought we were going out of business and I needed to start a new business in the context of our industry. And so when I looked at what was going on, I said, okay, listen, we can get these hotel rooms for $99 a night. Uh, we can, we can uh, have this huge venue. I can hire a couple of people to be my speakers and we can host an event. And uh, if it works, great. Uh, if it doesn't, it's like my farewell party on the Titanic as the Skybridge ship 
was becoming like the bridge to nowhere or no bridge. So, so it wasn't, it wasn't a brilliant vision or anything like that, but what it was, was we're in a crisis. We better try new things. We better innovate. We better be creative. We better be not fearful of failure. And I guess what I would tell your listeners is if you're having a bad day, I want you to think of my ass getting fired on July 31st, 2017 from the White House. I'm there for 11 days. I'm blown into Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, I'm lit up in every newspaper. I'm lit up in every cable news channel. I'm getting roasted. Uh, uh, Late night television is ripping me. Uh, And so if you're having a bad day, just think about me on that day. And hopefully it'll make you feel better. Like you can pull yourself out of something and you can dust yourself off and you can lean into the humor of failure too. You know, I'm on Steve Colbert's show two weeks after I was fired. And he's like, uh, well, did you think you were going to last a long time? I'm like, Stephen, I don't know. I thought I was going to last longer than a carton of milk in the refrigerator. And the point being, you can't take yourself that seriously and you have to see through failure. And you brought up a very good point. You have to learn from it, too. You know, there's there's more wisdom. Failure burns so much harder than success. Uh, just like on Wall Street, fear is a four or five times more powerful emotion than greed. Because if you're losing money, trust me, it's five times, four times more powerful than making money. The same thing with failure. So guess what happens to you when you are failing? You are wickedly alert. It's searing into your brain. And it provides a tremendous learning experience. And so listen, I'm not happy about this crisis. I don't think anybody is. But the flip side of it as that ancient Chinese expression is, it's a, it's a danger and opportunity. That's the symbol for crisis. And, and so there's a huge opportunity going to be coming out of this crisis. And we're all in the same boat. And maybe there's a lesson there that there's a shared element of our humanity that we have to start dialing more into, as opposed to thinking about the things that separate us more than the things that unite us. I love it. Uh, speaking of which, so people understand that you are going through the same. Well, if they didn't understand what the kids running there, you're going through the same things as, as all of us. Um, you have a restaurant called the Hunt and Fish Club. Tell us about that. Yeah. And what's happening with that right now? So we got a great restaurant. We opened it in January of 2015. Amazing reviews, a beautiful uh, setting. I, I We named it after John Gotti's uh, social club. I figure if I'm going to get stereotyped as an Italian, why not go the full Monty, right? So we call it the Hunt and Fish Club. Uh, we actually did, uh, we had John Gotti Jr. in there and John Travolta for the post-production party of Gotti. Movie didn't do super well, but at least it was a, it was a fun, it was a fun after party. But, but the, it's got great steak and great seafood. We made the decision March 1st to close the restaurant. The restaurant was booming. Uh, and unfortunately, the good news is we have enough money in our checking account we started a GoFundMe page for our employees. We Each of our partners put money in there and our employees are doing well sort of in suspended animation right. while we're waiting to restart the restaurant. And so bad news about New York is I don't think these restaurants can get started until June, yeah, maybe, maybe early July, uh, but we'll be ready. We'll open it up again and we'll try to get people comfortable coming in. The food has been amazing. And, uh, but it's, it's a sad thing to see because there were probably 60 middle class, middle income jobs in that restaurant that were helping, you know, so many different families. And so all of that's been put on pause. 
uh, we're funding it. Uh, they're getting some compensation from us, some unemployment, and uh, people are fine. Uh, but, you know, look, I think this thing's going to last a little bit longer than people wanted to. Um, in the beginning, uh, I think the, uh, the thought was it would be four to six weeks. It could be eight to 12 weeks. It's very hard to know. Uh, but I'm hoping that we can get that restaurant restarted. The government is actually, uh, we filed through the Small Business Administration, my operating partner, to get some capital from the government, yep. uh, which I think that's a very smart idea by the government. There are 31 million small businesses uh, that the government is going to be helping through this program. And I guess the good news is that's what government should be for. You know, this is an unintended, unexpected event with great economic consequence. And we pay a lot of money in taxes and put a lot of money into the government. So this is an opportunity where we can get some stuff paid back. Yep. I'm going to go back for a second before I move forward. But um, one thing I, I have to wonder, because one of the biggest fears we have as entrepreneurs, and I mean, I, I'm not even that well known, not nearly sort of, I don't do the evening news. I didn't get fired from the White House, but I get trolled online anyway, just from, from these random people <laughs> oh, yeah, who, who don't even know me. Troll. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh. Yeah, I mean, some of it's robotic technology. Right. Anytime I put out a tweet, there's like 500 people to say I'm a loser. Or my 15 minutes of fame are up. And, you know, some of it's robotic and some of it is just keyboard warriors. Right. And uh, yeah, look, I mean, uh, uh, Kellyanne Conway, who I still have a good relationship with, and I, I like Kellyanne, um, probably disagree on the president at this point. But, uh, you know, she took my phones uh, when I got the job that first day. And she went into my settings section and she shut off all the notifications on Twitter. And she said, I'm going to tell you what, you'll send out tweets, you'll be engaged on Twitter. Don't look at any of the comments. And it was a very instructive thing that she taught me. This is probably the hardest lesson for people to learn in life. And I'm still learning it and I'm still practicing it. So I'm not talking with any level of righteousness or sanctimony. Um, but you can't really care about what other people think of you. and you know, when your grandmother told you what other people think of you is none of your business, it is such a great, powerful thing. And it's a perfect axiom for life. And when I go through my life not caring what other people think of me, I do so much better. All that wasted time thinking, OK, you know, this person says something mean to me or that person said this or I got, you know, I mean, Seth Meyers called me like a human pinky ring on television. You know, he said I was a double parked BMW. OK, I laughed. I mean, you know, if I was 25, maybe that would have crushed me like a grape. I don't know, Nick. But my point is, is that, like, learn to adapt that strategy in life and you're going to have so much freedom. Right. And so much ability to express who you are as a human being. You know, Mel Brooks has the best line ever. And I try to live by it every day. Mel Brooks, 94 years old, said, relax. None of us are getting out of here alive. Isn't that a beautiful line? Right. Just relax. What are you going to do? You know, don't don't overhype yourself. You, know, you mentioned Tony Robbins, you know, him and I are very close, as I know you are. Yep. Uh, he wrote he wrote the introduction of my book uh, and we've been helpful to each other uh, over the you know 20 plus years that we've known each other. Uh, but he 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 also is is loaded with wisdom about enjoying the process and embracing who you are without any comparisons, you know. Uh, without comparison, you can dial down the atavistic emotions of jealousy and envy. If you just focus on yourself, you can actually live a pretty ha healthy and happy life. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I imagine that that sort of 
that fall from grace wasn't fun, but all of a sudden you realize, oh, wait a minute, there's nowhere to go but up. Like it must have been amazingly freeing that people called you everything under the sun. So now it's like that. I, I got that. Like yeah. be most people's worst fear, it's already over. The fear's gone. You, it happened. Yeah, right? I mean, look. Somebody said to me, "Well, I'm." I, I, this is like a funny story. Somebody said to me, "Well, I, uh, my my cousin's in a property dispute with somebody. They're calling me. It's not even my property." Well, I'm going to go to the press on this. I said, "I said go to the press, okay? Because you know what? They've said everything they could possibly say about me. What more are they going to say? You know what I mean?" Yep. My point is, is that like, let it go. You know. Yep. Let it go. Uh, there, there was a there's a funny thing in my my second my third book where you know I got in trouble for cursing right I I said a few curse words to a reporter I thought we were off the record he ran to CNN with the information I got blown out of the door of the White House totally fine I accept it I'm totally accountable for it I shouldn't have trusted the guy but there's a scene after I've been fired. And the press is descending on my mom's house, right? My mom and dad's house, small little blue collar house. They're banging on the door. My mother opens the door and says, get off my property. I'm like, Ma, you can't talk like that. That's what got me in trouble in the first place. You, you know what I mean? Point being is, you know, you grow up a certain way. What do you want me to tell you, right? <laughs> right? I said, Ma, you can't talk like that. That's how I got fired from the White House, you know? <laughs> That's great. Uh, my- but the point, point being is embrace it. What are you going to do? You're not going to be able to change it. But you should be able to embrace it and roll with it. I think that's my point to people, including this crisis. You're not going to be able to change it. And and the worst thing you can do as a person is have self-pity or feel like a victim. You know, you got to just roll with it. It's life, man. I agree. Hey, getting lots of great comments about the humility and the realness. That's the rawness. That's the reason I invited you on, Anthony. I love the fact that we've always had great conversations. And, and most people's perception from media is completely wrong about most everything, by the way. Uh, my good friend, uh, Jack Canfield, who wrote Chicken Soup for the Soul, he's got another expression. He says, the point of life is not to get from here to death with nothing bad happening. What do you do? You get there and go, oh, I made it. <laughs> and then it's over, right? I mean, that's not the point. Right. No, you don't want to do that. Yeah, I understand why people have that anxiety. But but listen, I mean, I will also say this to you, and I think you'll appreciate this. And I'm not trying to be overly philosophical, but I just want to uh, apply context to everything. Um, it's okay not to know. You know, and it's also okay to be vulnerable. I, I think some of this nonsense where we can't apologize to each other, we can never show any vulnerability and all this other stuff. I think you lose so much of the human equation uh, and you lose so much of what we have in common if you're acting like that. And so, you know, look, but, you know, you said something I'd know where to go, but up. I just want to point out it sucked. It sucked. I mean, I have a good perspective on it now, but I want to take you back to July 31st and August 1st of 2017. I was in a lot of pain. I'm not going to lie. Okay. Also, my wife and I, uh, if you read the tabloids, we're in the middle of filing for a divorce. We were like shooting at each other. Uh, We love each other. We've subsequently reconciled. I think our relationship, knock on wood, is better today than ever. Um, But, and that was a big learning experience as well. But let me let me tell you something. You know, you're going through a rough time. Other people have been through rough times. Uh, when someone shows up at the cocktail party and tells you their life is perfect and their career has gone up on a 45 degree angle, and their 2.4 kids have uh, 180 IQs, and they're you know they're in advanced education and all heading to Harvard and Stanford, you know it's BS. I mean, you know everybody on earth is dealing with the human condition and fraught 
within that human condition is levels of comedy and levels of tragedy. Yep, absolutely. Um, and uh, again, my one of my mentors, Dan Sullivan, said there's people who seek status and people who seek growth. I'm very disinterested in hanging out with people who seek status because status is where you try to pretend nothing's ever gone wrong. Growth is like, hey, let's we, we fell down. Let's get back up again. Um, Amen. Let, let's talk about um, what do you see? Uh, well, one of the things I, I want to make sure we do, my buddy Bobby calls it pandemic positives. Uh, my buddy Dan Sullivan calls it positive focus. It is so easy to get down in a time like this when essentially who moved my cheese couldn't be more perfect for right now. Like everything changed. I always encourage people. It's okay to mourn that a little bit. Like, you know, you worked really sure. hard for years and years to build up, you know, what you had. And now it's all different. It's okay to be upset. The problem is you can't be upset and paralyzed forever. And I would encourage everyone while we're in this quarantine, if you are not growing yourself, then you're missing a huge opportunity. And then, of course, if you live with family, friends, if you're not taking the opportunity to, to deepen and strengthen those bonds, you're going to miss a time that I guarantee you, you're going to go back in six months, 12 months, 18 months, six years ago. Man, I really missed that time when I could, when the kids weren't running to baseball, my daughter wasn't running to dance, they weren't running to soccer. And we just got to just be sort of like a 50s family, right? So don't miss that. So what are you, what no, are you enjoying? Look, I mean, I, look, it could also be a middle finger from planet Earth. You know, <laughs> I mean, it could be a collective, hey, you know, you you guys, you people that are humans are bothering me and you're, you're giving me a lot of service. You know what I mean? So it's like, let's take a chill here, right? Yep. And if you go to LA, right, there's no smog in LA right now. Right. And it just goes to show you like, probably burning up things that we should probably be a little bit more cautious about. So, um, but, but I, here's what I would say. Um, it's okay to be down and it's okay to have levels of anxiety about what's going on. But I think you should also try as hard as you can to coach yourself, uh, to think about things that are going well, you know, and, uh, we were talking about Tony Robbins. I mean, one thing Tony taught me 20 years ago is a gratitude list. And if you wake up in the morning, you say, okay, I got five things today. What am I super happy for? Well, I'm healthy. My children are healthy. Thank God. Uh, my house seems to be intact. We've got enough food. We're, uh, we're able to enjoy certain aspects of our lives. It's different today. Certainly, I had to tell my six-year-old who's turning six tomorrow, okay, your, your party's canceled, but we're going to have a great time. We're going to have a great party for you. And I think I think what we what we can do, and this is what really helps people. When I was failing in two thousand and eight, and I was able to get through it, it fortified me for a moment like this. And so, what you have to do sometimes in your mind is say, "Okay, this is a challenge. Either God, nature, whatever put has put upon me and put upon others at the same time. So it's a shared experience. Let's see what I can do with my own creativity and my own personal artistry to get through this." And and I think if you think about it from that perspective, it can be very, very powerful and you can you can uh, can come out of this thing better. But listen, are you claustrophobic? You have to be. You know, you're not moving around like you used to. Are you, you know, try to stay in shape, try to eat right? Uh, things like that. Don't don't overindulge due to your anxiety. Uh, those are all things that I'm, I'm trying to do. Listen, I hit the uh, the Duncan Heights cake last night super hard. OK, because it was my kid's birthday. So. And I was putting the sugar sprinkles on it like it was like, you know, like I was seven years old. I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. So I'm not trying to sit here and talk about things with sanctimony or like I have the answer and 
let me give you the answer. I'm not saying it that way. I'm just saying, here's the process. Here's what I try to go through in my life to make things better. And, uh, and by the way, you know, when you're a public figure, a lot of your bad stuff is out there, you know? So, so, you know, listen, I mean, accept, accept and embrace your flaws is another big lesson, Nick, you know, and, and, and if you do those things, you're going to come out of this thing way smarter, uh, way more aware of things. And you're probably going to be more forgiving of yourself. I think that's another big lesson for people. I don't wake up in the morning and say, wow, I did some really stupid stuff and got my butt fired from the White House. Let me kick myself in the pants this morning because I got my butt fired from the White House three years ago. I wake up in the morning. I take the millstone of that regret or whatever that mistake was. I take the millstone of that and I take it off my neck and I put it beside me. And I move forward. And you got to do that. You got to do that with this crisis. You absolutely have to. I, one, one of the things I love, uh, again, I quote him a lot. He's a brilliant guy. Dan Sullivan says, you know, you can't have creativity and without gratitude. I mean, so if you're if you're in a right now, you definitely need to be looking at what what are some other things I could do if you're an entrepreneur or side hustles or I, I'm repivoting my entire business. I think like most people are right now in one way or yep. the other. And if you are in a state of scarcity, you cannot be creative. So I love the fact make make two or three gratitude, you know, a list of gratitude, three, five things every day. I mean, I, I don't know about what well, I know about you. I can see you're not sweating. We're in air conditioning. I still got power, lights, food. I still got toilet paper, thankfully. And so, you know, just just working through every day the best we can. Remember to be positive. Remember to have gratitude. Look, life is not perfect for anyone. And especially the, the thing that got me the first day when all this sort of started coming down and things started, you know, revenue started declining. I'm like. You know, for the very for the first time in my life, I'm 40. First time in my life, the entire world is in the exact same situation. So I'm like, okay, well, I I can I can stop worrying about a few things because everybody has the same concern. So that that allowed me to free up a little bit. And then from here on out, I just encourage everybody just to have conversations. I'm so so thankful to have a conversation with you, Anthony. Uh, you need to be talking with people more and more. Look, you're not going to solve this problem by digging deeper into a book, most likely. You, because the, the book hasn't been written on this. The book is being written. You need to interact and engage. My friend, Dr. Ned Hallowell says, when you worry alone, you're worrying. When you worry with a friend, you're having a conversation. You're instantly problem solving. So if you're having problems with depression, anxiety, all these things, you'll reach out to obviously the proper professionals, but reach out and, and talk to some people. And the other thing is, as someone who is going through your day, reach out and check in with people. I checked in with you the other day, Anthony. That's how we got this call started. Like, just reach out and check in with people. You You wouldn't believe how much People are appreciative and they want to talk. They want to share right now because no right question. they got nothing else to do. No question. And I, I, I had to buy a, uh, I have a 1990s AT&T phone over here because when this first started, everybody was home using up the internet, ripping through Netflix. My, my cell phone and Wi-Fi was sort of slogging. And so I've got a phone in my office now that Alf probably used in the 1991 TV sitcom, you have these big fat numbers on it, but I have literally 14 hours a day tried to call every one of my clients over the last three weeks. And, and listen, to your point, even though our performance isn't where I'd like it to be and the stock market is down, uh, my clients are very appreciative that I reached out to them. And if I'm delivering bad news or good news, like I think what sometimes happens is you're in your business, you got bad news to deliver. And people don't like conflict. They don't like giving bad news. But I think what you'll find is everybody's in the same boat. So if you call them, they're going to feel way better 
uh, that you made the effort to call them. You know, one of my clients last night was in Rancho Santa Fe out in, in California. And he was like, you know, I really appreciate the call. I've got other guys manage my money. No one's called. me." You know, I said, well, you know, number one, I think it's important for me to reach out to you. But number two, you know, I'm bored out of my mind. I told him I got I got to call as many people as possible. He loved that. He loved that answer. You know, that's great, man. Uh, any last parting words of wisdom uh, before we leave? Well, you know, I, I, I'm going to give you those cliches. OK, relax. None of us are getting out of here alive. You're 40. I'm 56. So I'm going to use a line from Coco Chanel. OK, she had two. Coco Chanel is one of my heroes. And so I've read several autobiographies of her. Uh, obviously, she was a great fashion designer in, in the 40s. She was not a good looking woman by any means, but she had style, which has reverberated for 100 years now. And it's one of the leading luxury brands in the world. But Coco Chanel said a couple of things that I'll share. Uh, the first one is you get the face that you deserve when you're 50. And now that was before Botox and fillers and stuff like that. But I just want you to think about that. Her point was if you're smiling and you're happy and you're content with yourself, you won't have all those worry lines and you won't have that haggard look about you. So enjoy your life. You get the face that you deserve when you're 50. The other line, she said, oh, that's interesting that you feel that way about me. Guess what? I'm never thinking about you. I thought that's just a great line. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, think whatever you want about me, but I'm not spending time thinking about you. I'm trying to grow my life, uh, uh, create my destiny. And uh, so when I'm when I'm down and I'm feeling the blues, I turn to the Essential Wisdom book. It's about this big. You buy it on Amazon. The Essential Wisdom of Coco Chanel. Uh, there's some great quotes in there. And she was a matriarchal figure in a time of great patriarchy, which was the early part of the uh, 20th century. So anyway, those are my parting words. Love it, man. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining right. me on uh, Now to Next. Nick, Everyone else who tuned Nick, in, thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Anthony. Take care. All right. Yeah, Nick, be good. Make sure you like and subscribe and check out the next episodes.